0: Let's pray together. Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Father, as we come to you this Christmas Eve, we ask that you would give us, fill our hearts with this same desire the psalmist has in Psalm 27, a desire to gaze upon your beauty. God, there is one eternal object of awe that will captivate us for eternity, and we ask for a taste of it now. We ask for a taste of your Son in the infinite beauty of the gospel. We pray, God, that this Christmas Eve would not simply be a season of stuff and things and excitement around Christmas, but of great joy and delight in Christmas, in the wonder of the Word made flesh who has come to save us. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, good evening, everyone, and Merry Christmas. Uh, Tonight we come to God's Word with just one very simple goal in mind. Just one thing I want us to do with our time, and that is to peer in at the glory of the Incarnation. To, to fix our eyes on what makes Christmas, the Word made flesh, the birth of Jesus, so staggeringly beautiful beyond all compare. There's a, a certain cultural romance to Christmas, right, where if you're, you know, born and raised in America, you're familiar with this, right? Like, we, we love the lights, we love the decorations, we love the, the yard, you know, decor, and all the things around Christmas, all the stuff and it's, it's beautiful, it contributes to the joys of the season, and there's nothing wrong with that, but what I want us to do just tonight here on Christmas Eve is dig past all the stuff and fix our eyes on the one radiant core of Christmas glory, the one thing at the heart of it all that should captivate us now and will captivate us for eternity. To do that, we're going to consider just two verses from the first chapter of John's gospel, John 1.14 and John 1.16. Now, I know, because I have an education, that John 1.15 is between those two. I didn't miss it. It's okay. If you have your Bible, you might notice that John 1.15 is a a parenthetical aside about John the Baptist, and the the logic, the flow of the sentence runs straight from verse 14 to verse 16. So, you know, I'll do credit to John the Baptist, but tonight I want us to focus in on what the Apostle John is saying in verses 14 and 16. And this is what those words say. He says very famously, very wonderfully, Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Now, John says, we have seen his glory glory. That's that's kind of his his statement here of what's what's happened. We have seen his glory and our task tonight is to understand what he means by that and to behold the very glory that John is talking about. When John says we have seen his glory, the the word there for see is is not actually the the normal word for seeing something. It's uh, the Greek words related to the word for theater. So it's, it's not just about, you know, hey, look over there, like a casual kind of thing. It's, it's, it's a performance on a stage. It's a, a spectacle, a display. It's, it's something to behold. If I say to you, behold, I'm not just saying, hey, go look at that thing over there. I'm inviting you to, to fix your eyes, to, to cast your gaze on something and to marvel at this spectacle, something incredible. In this incredible thing, what John saw, what's on the theater's stage, is some display of Christ's glory. God's glory, His his worthiness to be praised, we could define glory maybe as His praiseworthy beauty, is something you find across the pages of the Bible. So Psalm 19 famously says uh, that the, the heavens declare the glory of God. So God's glory is seen in creation, the world around us. We see His glory. The, the prophets will talk about God's glory as the commander, the master, the general, if you will, of these angelic armies that are beyond count. God is glorious in that role. And those, I mean, we could go on and on. There's, those are just little examples of the way the Bible talks about God's glory. There's all kinds of ways the Bible speaks of it, but what we need to ask tonight, the question for us, is which glory? is John talking about? What, what dimension of God's praiseworthy beauty is he referring to when he says, we have seen His glory? Well, John doesn't leave us guessing. In just these two verses, he points out three separate glories of Christ, three spectacles for us to behold as we look at Him, but as we're going to see, He's, he's very clearly building up. He's, he's emphasizing one glory in particular. There's one glory here that takes center stage, and that'll be the third and final glory we look at. But very first, clearly we see in Christ the glory of His condescension, the glory of His condescension. John writes, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The immortal God condescended. He came down as one of us. He took on human flesh. Now, uh, if you're familiar at all with like Greek mythology, there's all kinds of these hybrids, right, of, of humans and the gods, the most famous probably being Hercules, right? So Hercules, you know, he had it all. He's a Marvel superhero, basically, right? That's, that's what you get with Hercules. He's the son of Zeus. He was super strong. You know, Disney movies, Unbeatable Warrior, all the good stuff, right? That's Hercules, but if you actually think about it for a second, it's, it's not all that impressive. It's not all that glorious because, I mean, he's half God, right? Okay. If I beat a bunch of kindergartners in basketball, I shouldn't be bragging about it. That's not that impressive. I'm, I should beat that. I'm not good at basketball, but I can beat a bunch of kindergartners. It's not that hard. But in Christ, we have a glory far different than just the myth of Hercules or anything like that. In Christ, we have the glory of the Son of God, the true Son of God, coming down, not in power, not in strength, but in humble frailty. The immortal took on mortality, God made flesh. The undying born in human vesture, leaving the majesties of heaven for a manger in the hay. Now that's, that's glory. That's a spectacle to behold. As Philippians 2 says, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. He's not some superhero. He came as a servant and there is glory in his condescension. But secondly, here in John, we see glory in his revelation. He says, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, one of the most important questions you could ever ask is, what is God like? What is God actually like? What is his character? What's what's he about? Who is he? And in Jesus, we get the answer. He's full of grace and truth. But what's so important to see is he doesn't just give the answer like a fill in the blank on a test. It's not just a voice from heaven giving us the deposit of information we need. No, we get the answer. What is God like? In a person. In Christ himself, we we get the answer to who is God with literal flesh attached to him. That's what Jesus' life was. It was a revelation of God himself. Uh, When I was in college, our college president was someone who I really respected. He was a really amazing guy. He was a famous theologian. He was a brilliant preacher. He had written many good books. He was a great leader, but he was an athlete too. So he would play, you know, intramural sports with college students. He'd wake up at 6 a.m. every morning and play basketball, and he was everything I wanted to be right? A sporty nerd. Like, that's the dream, right? Who doesn't want to be that? That sounds amazing. And for a while, he was someone I just knew on a stage, someone whose books I had read. He was someone distant. I didn't actually know him uh, until one day my intramural volleyball team played his intramural volleyball team. And this is important. We won. It's one thing to meet your heroes. It's even better to beat your heroes, right? But uh, I saw him the next day while I was walking to class, and now we had something to talk to him about, right? You know, went up to him, "Hey, great game last night!" And we, you know, started talking volleyball, and uh, we're just going back and forth. And he's like, "Yeah, you know, I woke up this morning thinking we should have done our rotation a little differently. Maybe if we didn't done something like this, we would have matched up better on you guys." And we're just going back and forth talking volleyball. It was great, and I left that conversation blown away because this dude runs an entire university, and he wakes up in the morning. Think about his intramural volleyball game last night. And I'm like, you're so cool. Like, like you're the coolest, right? It, it blew me away. He was way cooler than I even realized because I got to actually know him. And that's what we have in the entire life of Jesus. You read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you just find someone unbelievably attractive, I mean, John's description is is simple. He's full of grace and truth. That's Jesus, and there is so much glory there. But the glory of his condescension and the glory of his revelation both together have a higher purpose. Ultimately, they are steps on the path to his third and the primary glory John wants us to see because by itself... God coming down in flesh isn't actually good news for us. Dead in our sins, we can marvel. That's amazing. But we remain unchanged. And the same is true with his revelation. Christ makes the Father known, he reveals to us what God is like. But for rebels, it just, all it does is serve to display the real separation between us. It's even worse than we realized. That's what God is like, full of grace and truth. We're nothing like that. On the stage of human history, those things are glorious. We can marvel at them. We can applaud the performance, but we go home afterwards unchanged. We need the third, and the primary glory John is talking about here, the glory that takes center stage, which is the glory of his salvation. As I said, verse 15, right, parenthetical insertion, and the logic of verse 14 flows straight to 16. Look at at this logic, right? So verse 16 starts with the word for. For what? What are you referring to? Well, verse 14 ends, full of grace and truth. That's who this God is. That's who Christ is. And verse 16 says, for from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. This is the reason for his condescension. This is the content of the revelation. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die. This is why Christmas is the season of joy. His condescension, his revelation are the opening acts to the grand finale, the most stunning turn in the performance where Christ reaches down into the crowd and pulls us up on the stage. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. So, what Christ came to do, to give us salvation that we never deserved, that we weren't even looking for or asking for. It was grace upon grace to undeserving rebels lost in the darkness of our exile, hopeless in the world. And then our Creator came in grace to bring us back and to give us a share in eternity with Him. And that is glory. I have a friend who I sometimes call the Crown Prince of Shipley's Donuts. Shipley's Donuts, if you've not had them, Donut Place, it's great. And the reason I call him the Crown Prince of Shipley's Donuts is because his mom owns all the Shipley's Donuts in the College Station area. So if you've ever been to College Station and eaten a Shipley's Donut, you're contributing to his inheritance. Thank you. But I call him the Crown Prince because he's the heir, right? He's the Crown Prince of Shipley's Donuts. Pretty, pretty sweet position to be in. And one time, I was in College Station with him, and we went to a Shipley's Donuts, and we walk in the door together, and the manager walks up to the cashier and says, get these guys anything they want, no charge. (laughs) I was a kid in a candy store. I mean, I'll take five of those, as many of those as you can fit in a bag, just shove them in there. I'll take as many as you can. I want that whole row and a bag of those. Thank you. No charge, we're out of here. It was amazing. I had no right to it, but I was with the crown prince. So I got everything he got. And that's what Christ came to be for us to give us what was His by right that we had no business having. A share of fellowship with the Father, of eternal joy, an inheritance of glory. That's what Christ had. And all those whose faith is in Him, that's what we get. And to do that, the glory of His salvation he came to take what was ours by right. The wrath our sins deserve, the punishment that should have fallen on us. The manger was the first step on the road to Calvary. That's where he was going. Nails, spears shall pierce him through the cross he'll bear for me, for you. That's who this little child in the manger is. He came down. He made the Father known. Why? Why? so that from His fullness we might receive grace upon grace. There is grace in His condescension. There is grace in His revelation. But in His salvation, there is grace upon grace, glory upon glory. And I just want to conclude our time with two brief thoughts on what that means for us this Christmas. And the first Is that for all those in Christ, this should give us an unshakable confidence. It should give us an unshakable confidence. This is what John is saying that if you are in Christ, if you are a believer in Jesus, if you are united to Him by faith, that means the most glorious, the most powerful, the most supremely praiseworthy being in the entire universe has welded His own pursuit of His glory to your good we have seen his glory and it means grace upon grace to sinners he could have manifested his glory through power but he chose weakness for us he could have manifested his glory through judgment but he chose grace for us so if your faith is in jesus your eternal destiny is tied to the most sure thing in the universe, God's own eternal pursuit of His glory. And God does not gamble with His glory. We can be confident no matter what comes. I'm aware that during the holidays, there always are these maybe difficult associations. Someone you love that you lost, a hardship you're going through an empty seat at the table, something difficult that is particularly painful around Christmas. But if God has welded his own pursuit of his own glory to our good, we Christians can be confident he will see us through anything. He will carry us through To the end, if God is for us, who could be against us? What trial could take us down? What grief could consume us? He came down. He made himself known. For from his fullness, we have received. Not we might receive. Not we could receive. We have received grace upon grace. God does not gamble with his glory, brothers and sisters. So no matter what comes, be confident. Your destiny in Christ is secure. And then the second thing, what this wonderful truth means for us is our joy. Now, as Jared said this morning, the praise of the praiseworthy is just natural, right? You see a touchdown for your team. You just explode in praise, in joy. You can't help it. And what's so amazing is not only is that it's just impossible to avoid when you see the beauty of the praiseworthy— but also that is the path to your own joy. That's what you feel in that moment. That's what you experience is delight. We have gazed at God's glory this evening and the Westminster Catechism famously says, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And C.S. Lewis, reflecting on this, says, these, glorifying God and enjoying him, these are the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify Him, God is inviting us to enjoy Him. See, sometimes we have in Christian circles a a pious stoicism. We think things like celebration or revelry are beneath, you know, well-mannered, respectable people like us, and that is not what Christmas is about at all. God is not after a cold, mechanical worship. He did not save us to a boring life of somber disobedience, but don't worry, when you die, you get heaven. No, no, no. Your delight, your joy in Him, which will last forever, starts now. The condescension, the revelation, and the salvation of Christ are aimed to produce in us a God-glorifying delight, a joy. He restores us to the Father so that our joyful response will glorify His name for eternity. In the words of Psalm 16, verse 11, you make known to me the path of life. Where does that path lead, this thing God makes known to us, this wonderful salvation, where does that lead? In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand our pleasures forevermore. Brothers and sisters, the proper response to gazing at the glory of Jesus, at the proper response to wondering at the incarnation, to fixing our eyes on this glory, is very simply... To have a merry, merry Christmas, filled with Christ exalting joy. Let's pray. Father, you have looked down on broken sinners and you have given us grace upon grace. And we pray. That in the midst of everything this Christmas season, you, by your grace, would fix our eyes on the wonders of your Son. That we would mine the fathomless depths of his goodness, of his beauty, and above all we would see the shining jewel of his salvation, that he set his love on us, an undeserving rebellious people, and he came, he made you known, and he died so that we might live. We love you and we lift your name up together in Christ. Amen.